Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. So thank you very much, Carlotta, for taking the time today to join me on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Glad to join you. Fantastic. Maybe just to begin, if you could give me a little bit of, uh, for the listeners, a bit of, uh, about your background and, and really what your research has been about, latterly at least. Well, I'm not a very typical person. I'm very much a self-taught person. I'm an interdisciplinary In fact, my education has been very interdisciplinary. So I'm not an economist. I'm not a historian. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a social psychologist. I'm all those things together and even a bit of an architect. So it's complicated. But it basically what I have done throughout much of my life is to try to look at the social consequences of technology. It all began in my youth in Venezuela when there was a, you know, the fashion was technological dependency. We were trying to figure out why development wasn't happening. And we we had generally as a society, or at least, you know, the elites, the students, the, the university people were really talking about technological dependency. That was the thing. So I wanted to understand why that was. And that's what I studied. I studied everything I could. And I did interdisciplinary things, including my postgraduate work, always interdisciplinary. And I had my first project when I started working in university was looking at the structural causes of the energy crisis, which had just happened. This was in 1976. So it was just after the energy crisis. And we just couldn't figure out why we hadn't been invaded. You know, all the all the OPEC countries. I mean, why did the advanced world accept this? So, you know, through this whole thing and trying to understand it, I discovered the role of oil, the role of plastics, the role of this whole ultra material and ultra energy intensive technology world. And while I was at that, I discovered microelectronics, this new thing, which was cheap. Then I saw oil was cheap and plastics were cheap. And that's why why they shaped technology. And then this new thing, microelectronics, what was it going to do? It was going to control energy use. It was going to do, you know, information was going to become a new thing. That's when I developed the first hypothesis that cheap microelectronics or cheap information was going to replace cheap oil as the shaper of technology, as the shaper of innovation. Doing this, I discovered Schumpeter. Doing that, I discovered Chris Freeman. Chris Freeman invited me to Sprue in England. And from there on, I have been researching on the topic of technological revolutions. And my 2002 book, which is Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital, and it has as a subtitle, the dynamics of bubbles and golden ages. Because what I discovered through these years was that technological revolutions were the explanation that I was looking for, the impact of technology on society. The power of the microelectronics and the and the influence of Moore's law, the degree to which the falling prices of semiconductor 
power of of microprocessor power has just had such a massive impact on the, the 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 cost of technology and the its impact yes it was very impressive to see that's why i could think of a revolution because i saw this incredible reduction in prices of everything that had a a chip in it so it was about cheap chips and how it penetrated every industry, everything, reducing how much materials you used for producing something, reducing pollution because you could get controls with it. And and then, of course, information getting cheaper. And even though Internet did not exist yet, uh, telecoms was becoming digital and there was a lot happening. So and all that was reducing prices while oil prices were going up. So it was pretty obvious that there was going to be this major change. Yes, yes. Now, a technological revolution, what, can you explain what that looks like? What is it and, and, and why it's important? Well, to begin with, I have come to the conclusion that the market system cannot work. You know, that technological revolutions are indispensable for the working of the market system because each technological revolution provides like a coherent set of possibilities and people work within those possibilities for a long time because you can make a lot of money and you can make a lot of products and you can make a lot of innovation with that set of technologies like we're seeing now. It's so obvious that practically every innovation is completely related to information technology. Even, you know, when you think, of course, solar panels are are electronics, basically, but all the others without electronics wouldn't be able to function. And then there is the smart grid, and then there is the whole thing. You know, all the software world, all the cloud, all the things like Uber, I mean, every innovation, the platforms, all the apps that people put on on um, Apple and Google and all the rest, I mean, this whole world is all coherent. You know, it makes a lot of sense. Platforms make a lot of sense. Networks make a lot of sense. Just as before, pyramids, you know, big division of labor, absolutely all tasks divided in bits so that you could do it more efficiently and more quickly. Uh, you know, all the silos, all that. That was actually extremely effective and extremely new and innovative when it began. Of course, then, like every revolution, it died. It became exhausted and you could no longer do anything. And this one will too. Now, the thing is that each revolution is an interdependent system of technologies. They offer higher productivity than the previous, and they influence the whole economy. And that is extremely important. A revolution spreads and transforms everything. Everything in the economy, it transforms social forms, and it transforms organizations, and also government itself and lifestyles. It's really a massive process of change. And the thing is that each of them contains what one could call a common sense best practice for innovation, which I have called a paradigm. I called it in my book a techno-economic paradigm. I am now thinking of a combination of a techno-economic and a socio-institutional paradigm so that together they form a sort of meta-paradigm. We're all thinking in, in similar terms for organizations, for and also in products. So what holds together a technological revolution? It's the paradigm that is born out of its practice. Yes. How do you recognize the technological revolution, Carlotta? Well, first of all, 
of course, they make a huge change. So you know there is something happening. But the interesting thing is that if we look at each of them from the Industrial Revolution in England all the way to the Information Revolution now, they all offer a new infrastructure, canals, railways, transcontinental railways, transoceanic telegraph, steamships, etc., then roads and you know highways, airways, and so on, and now internet. So we always have a new infrastructure. Then we have an important cheap input, which now is microelectronics information and all that, and it was oil before and steel before that and so on, and also a set of all pervasive technologies. Like today, we have software and computers and uh, and also artificial intelligence and robotics, all these things that can enter many, many, some people call them uh, general purpose technologies. You know, it's that sort of thing. And so, but they're also interdependent. You know, you sell, if you have more computers, you sell more chips. If you have more computers, you sell more software. If you have more software, you sell more computers. If you have more computers and and iPhones, you sell more. You know, they're all sort of interdependent economically, but they're also interdependent in the sense of their logic, of their, what I've been calling a paradigm, the common sense of how they're used. So when they penetrate other industries, they they bring their logic also. So you feel that that it's a transformation that goes across the board. But the interesting thing is that the reason why they come together and the way they come together is because the previous technological revolution is exhausted. It's because mass production could no longer increase productivity. By the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, you could no longer increase productivity. There were no more products that would really, I mean, you had the electric carving knife and the electric can opener after you had had things as important as the as the washing machine, the refrigerator, the vacuum cleaner, you know, really big things. And then you had these tiny things at the end. And with every, with the plastics, the same thing, you know, you had already produced as many. So you come to a point where markets are saturated, people already had two cars per household and so on. And the productivity increases no longer come and new products are also exhausted. So suddenly finance comes around and finds all these little guys that might be doing other things or big guys like IBM who might realize that they have to transform. So you have this big transformation uh, that comes as a solution to the limits of the previous. And the limits of the previous included environmental limits, except it hasn't been so easy to really get to grips with that sort of limit. But that was already obvious by the time mass production was saturated, was exhausted at the end of the 60s and beginning of the 70s, which is when the limits to growth was written and the silent spring and all those things. Yes, yes. Now, so they they matter. They uh, are pervasive. They, as you say, they impact across society, across in many ways, in industrial processes, across business. Are there downsides to technological revolutions? You, You mentioned there the limits to growth ideas that grew up in the 70s and so forth. And it's an idea that is is maybe had a bit of a, a rebirth, a regrowth, as it were. Questions about the limits, you know, the, the environmental limits to growth and the implications of economic growth. Actually, Schumpeter called each revolution a gale of creative destruction. I mean, he really meant 
that they were not very mild little phenomena. So yes, they are, they are terrible. They are very tough. They create unemployment. They create inequality. They create all sorts of things. That's the destruction part. They they destroy uh, regions and and industries. But at the same time, they are the source of the new creativity, so that you can get growth and you can get new wealth, and therefore you have potential for well-being. It's you know if you think of the industrial revolution and you come all the way to today you realize that the workers definitely live better, and that's because of growth. Now, there are some people, of course, that are talking about no growth, degrowth, and whatever, you know, several words for this. I believe that they are trapped in the notion of growth with the paradigm of the mass production revolution. They really think that growth is about mass production. It is not. And definitely what we need to do is to grow, but with the new paradigm, which can definitely be environmentally and socially sustainable. So the whole problem is don't get trapped in the old paradigm. The old paradigm is the one that's responsible for the way we grew. But now we need to continue growing because there are too many people waiting I mean, just think, if we stop growing, what's going to happen in Africa? What's going to happen in the Middle East? What's going to happen in Latin America? It's so absurd. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that because there are some people who would argue that it's not so much growth, it's the distribution of growth and who receives the benefits of growth. And there are people who would say that, you know, a lot of the economic growth such as it is since let's say, since 2008, and, and for uh, other extended periods of time, have not been equitably distributed. And that is a more important factor than growth per se. Okay, distribution of growth is extremely important every time. But how much do you have to distribute? Because if we were to take all the wealth of all the wealthy countries and spread it evenly across the world, I think we would still have a lot of, you know, everybody would be poor. There isn't that much, you know, just, you know, sometimes we think that there are what, uh, I don't know how many thousand millionaires, if all their money was spread around to everybody, we wouldn't be rich. You know, it's really not that much. We need much more, but it's got to be of the right sort. So we need to have biodegradable materials instead of the ones that are limited. We need to have growth in services, in creativity, in education, in, in nutrition, in health, in all sorts of things which need much less material than what was the super consumerist, wasteful, energy-intensive, materials-intensive way of growing with mass production. And of course, distribution is super important. Income distribution, and but not necessarily. You know, sometimes the some of the socialist governments have tried distribution. Venezuela has been destroyed precisely by a government that said it's not a question of growth, it's a question of distribution. And they distributed all the oil money, not only to Venezuelans, but also all over the world. And now the country is, people are going by the millions, you know, hundred thousands in Colombia, a million in all over people 
desperate because what you get is poverty if you don't have wealth creation. But I really feel that that we've got to understand, you know, that wealth doesn't necessarily have to be anti-environmental and certainly doesn't have to be anti-social. We need a positive sum game. Yes, yes. So well, we, we absolutely, and I would come on to that topic later. The idea of green growth, smart green growth, dematerialized growth. I think that's really important um, and, and very interesting. I'm just wondering now. We're talking about those technological revolutions, and I think these. You talked about two distinct phases. I think that's an important part of the analysis, and uh, particularly with respect to where we are today. Can you talk about those, Carlotta? Yes. When, when a technological revolution erupts, it enters what I call the installation period, which is the time when the new technologies are being learned, they're being used, they're spreading slowly, they're making a lot of money, but the old revolution is declining. So you have a lot of unemployment because of the old. And of course, this time we also had globalization, which meant that jobs were taken away <laughs> to, to somewhere else which is why we now have so many other countries developing. I mean, we have the four tigers. We have South Korea and a developed country already when we thought that it wasn't possible to develop. And in my old young ideas about technological de- dependency, you know, that it was impossible and yet Korea made it. And so the, the Japan made the leap and China, of course, has been an almost incredible miracle, very similar to what the U.S. did from the 1870s, the huge leap that took her to the top, to the front, with England having been the big power before that. So that installation period is a time when many new things are happening. It's it's all a bit chaotic. And of course, there is the bubbles and the collapses. It's really a huge experiment with new technologies, new infrastructure, all the new things happening with finance, moving the system and making a lot of suffering. I mean, this separation between the rich and the poor has happened each time because you're destroying the previous way of living. And you're creating a new one, but it's not ready yet. And nobody really knows which way it's going. It's a huge experiment. You don't know who, which are going to be the things that are accepted. You don't know which companies are going to become the giant, the new giants. So it's all rather turbulent and rather confusing socially. And deployment, which is the second half, is the best time. You get the golden ages. That's when the whole thing is good for business and for society also. You recover some of the employment. You recover uh, some of the income distribution problems. But that only happens if government tilts the playing field and shapes the context. Markets alone don't do golden ages. What we had, the post-war golden age, was not just markets. Markets worked in a context that was created for them with two important directions, suburbanization, so that people would own homes, even blue-collar workers would own suburban homes, and therefore also an automobile, and therefore also all the electrical appliances and all the frozen food and all the plastics and all the things. I mean, it was a way of living, a particular way of life, which was fostered by government, giving such things as unemployment insurance so you could pay even if you didn't have a job, you know, all the things that you had bought uh, that you had to pay monthly, including your mortgage and your car and all the rest. They also gave backing to the banks for mortgages. So Fannie Mae 
was born was created in the 1930s to help banks give mortgages to people who were on salaries so that they would trust because they used to give mainly to the wealthy. So they did that. Plus, the government built all the roads and all the things that were needed and put on the infrastructure, the sewers and the water and all these things so that the developers would come and do their job. You sort of create the conditions and then you also create the the tax system. Do you know what the tax was? The, The top rate of tax in the U.S., in the 1950s, which is the first 10 years of the golden age, was above 90% in the US, believe it or not. So governments can really shape. Why would people be willing to pay such taxes? Companies, businesses, they learned during the war that having mass consumption, you know, mass demand was fantastic because they had this new method of mass production that allowed great profits because you had enormous productivity, very, very high productivity. So they then accepted that it was very good to pay because the government then created this direction of suburbanization, which gave consumer demand massively. And the other one was the Cold War, which created demand also in all the high-tech things and all the military procurement. And then all the things that government itself, because government also had salaries and, ha- and did education and, and in some cases actually government-funded health like in Europe. So with all that, business had a wonderful demand situation created by government policy, not by the market, by government policy. And that is what really creates golden ages. And that's what we need to do now and are not doing. But anyway, we were talking about installation and deployment. So deployment is that second good time, the golden ages, if government does the right thing. That's very interesting. Um, and, and you hit touched on the point of taxes, which is very important. And we will certainly talk about that a little later. Where are we now in this uh, current well, ICT revolution. And to, to what extent are the issues that we're facing today in terms of populism, in terms of inequality and the issues in society, uh, to what extent are they characteristics of the where we are in this? And I guess then the question is, from what you know about technological revolution, what needs to happen next? We are actually in the 1930s, in the equivalent of the 1930s. Because between the installation period, which I told you about is finance and the beginning and all the new technology, nobody knows where it's going and so on, and deployment where people already know where it's going and they actually shape and decide, you know, there is the social shaping of the direction of the technology, which is the golden age, which is deployment. Between the two, there is a a time that I've called the turning point. Turning point because control goes from finance to production the control of what happens in the economy, you know, during the installation period, as we have known and we have seen, and and we're still going through that. Finance is still in control and production has actually even become financialized because they can't, uh, they're not centering on production. What's happening is that we are in this turning point, which is a period after the collapse and before deployment, before the golden age, if it happens. And that period is the time when all the problems are revealed, all the problems created by creative destruction. The destruction part is now very visible because when you're in a bubble, it looks like prosperity. 
and it is prosperity for some, you know, for a portion of the population. Uh, but most people are actually going through a difficult period during installation because because most people were working in the old industries and the old industries are changing and everything is lost. And if you also destroy what the state had been doing, like we did this time with the welfare state, the Reagan-Thatcher revolutions, destroying the a good part of the welfare state and then the austerity. I mean, we've had all these things happening, which make people lose what they had. That's why when Trump offers something, he says, let's make America great again, because people remember better times. As far as people are concerned, of course, these are not the better times, except for a part of the population. That means that people, many people are angry. Many people have suffered. Many people fear that their children will have worse lives than they did. And that is very fertile ground for populist, nationalist, messianic leaders. Uh, there is plenty of anger. There is usually xenophobia. It can be against the Jews or it can be against the Muslims or it can be against anybody, against the Catholics or against the Mexicans or whoever. You know, it's just the other. It's the people who appear to be responsible of what I have lost. When in fact, what I have lost is the, you know, it's the whole revolution. And it's also government that, has, that hasn't solved the problem because nothing says that governments couldn't have helped the victims of creative destruction, but that's how it's happened. So in the 1930s, we had Hitler and Stalin. Now we've had Brexit, we've had Trump, Italy, Hungary. Even in Sweden, there is a party that's called the Democratic Party, which is actually a fascist party and it's anti-immigrant and all the rest. It is a time when people are frustrated. They will follow anybody that offers heaven. And it's also a time when political parties divide. You know, even in the 1840s, when uh, Peel, who was a conservative, decided to repeal the Corn Laws, which were the protective tariffs on agriculture, which protected the aristocrats. And the, he actually ended up leaving the Conservative Party because he thought that free markets and capitalism should be favored. Industry should be favored against aristocratic interests and agriculture. And then you had in the at the beginning of the century in England, you have Chamberlain, who also who wanted protectionism when England was free market because it was the empire and they wanted, you know, they were exchanging agriculture for industry, but mainly it was finance that was financing the railways of the world. So then, uh, you know, he moved towards, you know, against uh, free markets. There were other things, but anyway, then the Labour Party was born because they weren't happy with what the liberals did. At that very same time, we're talking about equivalent time in terms of turning point. And then in the US, you also had populists in the 1890s. Theodore Roosevelt left the Republicans uh, when he saw that they weren't doing what he thought should be done. So, and today all the center parties are splitting everywhere and they're being, and they're losing out their things. So, so it's this mess of political parties. It happens, it has happened historically very often. So what happens is that during the installation period, you have a paradigm shift in the economy. And now we're having a paradigm shift in the social political space. 
it's almost like creative destruction in the social political space. And that is what the turning point is about, is the period when the new forces, the new directions are created, and then hopefully they will lead in the best possible way for social benefit in terms of what the technologies can do, because the technology is now ready to transform everything. But it's only transformed a little bit, and what it has done is to transform things without the state responding. Uber, for instance. You know, people think that what you have to do to solve the Uber problem in terms of both the current taxi drivers and the ones that are under very sort of zero hours sort of contract is to turn them into actual regular employees like it used to be in mass production. So you're a permanent employee and you have all the rights that were won and organized in the period of mass production. But that's impossible. That's not right. What you have to have is a new type of arrangement that will recognize that lots of people are self-employed. Lots of people will be on zero hours contracts. Lots of So what do you do that is specifically tailored to this new characteristic of the labor market so that people are protected? You've got to construct a safety net, but you can't just expect the old safety net to come back and people to adapt to something that doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit. So that's the sort of thing. I mean, it's a big, big change. And therefore, politically, there is a lot of new thinking to do. And very often that creates divisions and that creates, and of course, the people who are angry <laughs> will follow the, the messianic leaders. You know, they, we had Hitler and Stalin. Uh, that was the sort of extreme left and the extreme right. We are having them now. They're different. They're different each time, but there they are, and people are following them. And we've got to think, what is it that society is offering? Is it better than what these people are offering? Is it clearer? It's not. Absolutely. That's, that's fascinating. You, now you've said one thing there that, that also, uh, amongst many, many interesting things, that just raised a question which I hadn't suggested to you. You talked about successful technological revolutions. You've studied uh, five, as I understand it. Were there revolutions that made it the first part of the phase, the installation, and didn't make it to the second phase? Is that a, a possibility? Yes, definitely. I, I would say that Britain... Uh, which was the leader in the first and the second, and was, you know, the, the gold standard was in the central bank. In, uh, you know, Britain was the center of the economic world. It was the most powerful country. And then the US and Germany forged ahead, and Britain didn't. And it didn't because even though Lloyd George worried about the, you know, there was the people's budget and all these things because there was a lot of poverty and so on, Britain didn't go ahead with the really, truly new industries and it didn't transform society into a very uh, sort of powerful powerhouse with, with uh, society. It, it built the empire thanks to that. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Argentina, and even the US and Canada 
developed because you know the, the financial markets were were in charge of this transformation of this big globalization but british society actually lost out there is a very interesting hypothesis about the british society by kane and hopkins called gentleman gentlemanly capitalism where they hold that the industrial bourgeoisie in england never took power that in fact the aristocrats joined the financial sort of the financial world in the city of london and the southeast kept power throughout and they were the ones who decided to stick to free markets and to you know not help industry not transform the whole context in favor of employment and industry and all that keeping to the empire interests and you know investing abroad and so on Perhaps that explains why, uh, even to this day, the British economy is very much more financial than, than industrial. You know, there is this big, big power of finance in England, in, in England, basically in England, but in the UK, that has its roots perhaps in its incapacity to have created a proper golden age in the, in the third surge. And the third, I call them surges, by the way. The technological revolutions are what happens in industry, but the surge of development is what happens in the whole, in society, in the, you know, seen as, a, as part of progress. You have the surges, which are driven by technological revolutions. Mm. Yes, yes. And it turns out that from your research, the role of finance is, is extremely important, um, which we might come on to in, in a moment. Now, it seems from your research that some kind of economic crash happens before deployment. We had a major economic crash in 2008, um, and it seems that problems have only got worse since then. <laughs> What's your sense of how that could play out? Could it be an environmental collapse, perhaps, rather than an economic crash that triggers deployment? I, I think it could be. But, but I want to make clear that the collapse happens and then it can be two years. It has been different different amounts of years between the crash and deployment, but uh, 1930s was 15 years if you count the World War. You know, it began in 29 and then throughout the 30s, it's as long as now we've had since, since uh, 2008 to now, it's 10 years. So we could still go five years and still wouldn't win. It doesn't, nothing says that governments are wiser now than they were in the 1930s. So not coming in immediately is not, it's not surprising. It is, it could be that the more, the more advanced the society, the more difficult it is to sort of, you know, it's like, what is it that they talk about turning around? Is it a, is it a tanker, a bunker? Yes, a tanker, I think, yes. The society becomes much more complex, so what governments have to do becomes even more complex because when you have to change from, well, just look at Brexit, the complexity of what's going on because, you know, because for even much less, for 40 years or something like that, the UK had been has been creating links, creating links, you know, so you have to change all that. It's not easy. And now we're talking about something much bigger than Brexit. It means changing the whole context. I mean, modernizing the welfare state, modernizing the tax system, modernizing everything that government does, the regulatory system, and also to understand that we're in a global economy. Look at the whole quantitative easing. Quantitative easing was poured 
tons of money, as much as 7% of US GDP into the economy and no inflation. Why? Because, well, because things work differently in a global economy. You cannot control it the way you used to. It used to be like a hydraulic tank, uh, you know, the Keynesian sort of policy. So you had a closed economy, relatively closed. You had quite a bit of control. Now it's all open. It's very complicated. Anyway, first thing is we are in an equivalent of the 1930s, and it's not surprising that it's lasted so long. First of all, there could be another crash. The financial situation today, if you look at the stock market, it's crazy. I mean, it's it's two and a half times. It's grown 250% when the economy uh, has only grown maybe 15 or something like that. So it, it's completely off whack. Together with that, there is an uncontrollable debt burden, public and private debt and corporate debt. Huge. It's like carrying... Now we're talking we're talking about turning a tanker. Now think of carrying a tanker. I mean the debt burden is enormous. So the possibility of another crash or crashes or whatever are still there. Uh, of course an environmental collapse could also happen. Maybe New York would be flooded and then everybody would understand that we better do something or even a political crisis, you know, with all these extremist people taking over in most countries and then failing and making a mess because they will. There, there's no way that their policies are going to work. It could be that. What needs to happen is that governments realize that they've got to radically change the way they, uh, the context is shaped. You've got to tilt the playing field. You have to change it very radically. Yes, maybe. I don't know what will happen. Or, or it could not happen. That's also a possibility, unfortunately. Yes, a stark uh, possibility. Um, now, you talk about the role of the state, um, which is a very important part of the, this picture. What needs to change, do you think, for successful deployment? I mean, it's not a great time for political leadership. You've mentioned some of the extremists, the populists, and so forth. Um, and are you optimistic that, that, that this is possible? Well... I'll tell you that I always say that I'm the most pessimistic optimist you'll ever meet because I know that technologically a sustainable golden age is possible. And I know in all sorts of ways why it's possible. I know it can be good for businesses everywhere. It can be good for people in the advanced emerging and lagging countries. So we really could have a fantastic, I mean, the equivalent of what happened in the advanced countries of the West with mass production could happen globally with information technologies and the whole and all the power that we, that these technologies provide and all the learning, the possibilities for education. Just think of the, of the MOOCs, you know, if you think that people could learn Somebody in Lesotho can have a Stanford University education without moving. It's so amazing. I mean, the power of change that we now have is quite amazing. And it's, of course, being used in a very narrow way. What I think is the recipe, just as I said before, suburbanization and the Cold War, I would now say that we need our smart green growth and full global development. And of course, universal information technology, universal ICT, everybody should have access to cheap and powerful internet all over the world. That would be a basic thing for this model to work. But to have smart green growth means that 
we have growth, that it is green, and that it uses information technology to the best. And full global development means that it isn't just China, that it isn't just India, that it isn't, you know, it's uh, not not just Asia, that it's everybody. The whole smart green, I'll, I'll explain a little bit what this global development, why, why it's so important, or maybe I can begin by that. Full global development would mean, first of all, of course, we all worry about poverty all over the world, so humanitarian reasons. But there would be two very important things. One is that if you are developing, you require a lot of engineering, a lot of infrastructure, equipment, and all the rest. And if you think of it in a green way, you think of it being adapted to the specific climate and conditions and whatever of each country. And of course, the advanced world has now lost the capacity to produce uh, consumer goods. I mean, that's gone. That's in Asia, maybe, and maybe Asia will move it to Africa partly or whatever. But the advanced world no longer has the possibility of producing consumer goods. But it's certainly, uh, I mean, massive consumer goods. But it can do the luxury ones. It can do all things. It can export education. It can export capital goods. It can design specially capital goods, engineering, infrastructure, all those things which would contribute to development. And then, of course, the developing countries would develop and be able to sell, you know, whatever they produce for themselves and for others. So you have this enormous growth of world trade. And of course, we'd have to develop ways of transportation and so on that wouldn't be, be maybe dirigibles. <laughs> we need to, to solve the transportation problem with less energy. So the whole world developing would be very good for the advanced world. And also to add, you reduce migration. Never reduce migration if you don't develop, you know, if those countries don't develop. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes and aims to break the link between natural resources, conflict and corruption. From its first campaign, which shut down the Camer Rouge's illegal logging industry, to Blood Diamonds, anonymous companies, the brutal killings of environmental activists, Global Witness's hard-hitting investigations and tenacious advocacy galvanise global change. Global Witness doesn't just track and expose corruption. It works to transform the systems that allow corruption to flourish. Find out more at globalwitness.org. Alert Conservation is an alliance of leading environmental researchers and thinkers committed to promoting cutting-edge conservation research and to galvanise public support to solve major, often neglected environmental issues. Alert publishes weekly blog posts as well as frequent press releases and high-impact videos to focus attention on the crucial conservation challenges we are all facing. Head to alert-conservation.org where you can find out more. And now smart green growth. That's the most important thing because it would have to be the whole world going smart green, which means using the power of ICT to reduce the tangible portion of GDP and lifestyles. So it's dematerializing growth without reducing growth, actually increasing growth, but dematerialized, and also providing people with something which is different from just possessions. The whole thing is to get lifestyles also to be dematerialized. Uh, and that's very important because lifestyles has been his, have been historically where the new employment has been created. 
So you had the Victorian boom, which was the golden age of mid-19th century. And that meant a lot of people working in all sorts of things, you know, like we see in all the novels, all the seamstresses and the educators and the accountants and all, you know, an enormous amount of people being employed around lifestyles. And then we have the Belle Epoque, which is also another period of a lot of employment in restaurants and hotels and travel and this and that and the other and in printing and because everybody started reading like mad and all sorts of musical. And so there was this whole world of employment that had nothing to do with the big engineering firms that were the, you know, that were employing just the the skilled workers and that was really the giant companies were in something else, but there was a lot of employment. And the same thing happened in the post-war golden age, the whole world of construction, retail, etc. While mass production was reducing the number of people needed to produce the cars and the refrigerators and all the rest, suburbanization was creating millions of jobs. In fact, it created many more. While, while industry grew three times, it actually only increased employment by 25%. But all the rest, construction, banking, retail, uh, the whole, all the services industries and all that were the ones that grew three times. And therefore, you could have, they could actually buy the higher productivity products of mass production. And the interesting thing is that the salaries of those people were influenced positively of the high productivity industries. So that in fact, salaries all came up, even if lots of the jobs that were created by the suburbanization thing were not very, you know, were low productivity, in fact, services, basically. So lifestyles are important. And we now need a better lifestyle, but also the possibility of it creating employment. So Say we move from possession to access or rental of truly durable goods, because the whole, you know, calling them durable is almost a joke. They're supposed to break down in four or five years, most of the electrical appliances, you know, all the consumer goods. Well, uh, I remember when I was young, uh, they, uh, they would last 35, 40 years. So they can certainly do it now with better technology. So the whole idea, of course, would be to be able to, to bring back maintenance. So lots of people who used to be perhaps uh, assembly workers could become maintenance workers and we could have uh, we could have products with chips on them, which would tell their history. We could rent them on things like when Amazon, you get a used book, they say what state it's in because they would have a, a chip that would tell its history. So you can actually put it in Amazon like that. Then the you would produce no spare parts except by 3D printing them when you needed them. So the people who rented the things would then be able to diagnose and then 3D print the parts and change them. So you'd have a whole lot of employment associated to a new way of consuming durable products, which are really durable. And then some people who are just entering the consumption ladder can get them for very, very low price. In fact, everybody today <laughs> rents because if people buy uh, on credit and you're paying every month, you're actually renting until you finally own it. And by the time you own it, it breaks down again. So uh, it's just making, making it frank, saying frankly that you're renting. So that would be one thing, possession to access. But there are all the other things 
health, nutrition, exercise, local agriculture, experience, education, creativity. You know, if you think of all that, you, you have so many community jobs, some face-to-face jobs, the whole environment in terms of both work and, and what you consume. You consume things that are good for you. You know, you, you do exercise, you do, and then you have people who are exercise coaches, or you have all the places where you do exercise. You have the nutrition also might mean that you have local food being grown around the cities, probably in uh, maybe in hydroponic ways. I don't know. We have to also find which are the best ways in terms of both nutrition and energy consumption and quality and so on. So all that means less materials per product, more durable products, shifting from products to intangibles when possible, and of course, less energy. But if regulation and taxes don't lead in that direction, then you don't go very far. The model smart green growth plus full global development have to both be very clearly into sustainability because it's not just what the technologies can do, which fortunately information technology can help in all that, but also what the planet can sustain. So, you know, if we really want it to be sustainable, we've got to make sure that everything goes in that direction. Absolutely. Uh, it's a, a very polarized debate in America, certainly, and in, in English-speaking countries about climate change, global warming, and, and a very fractious and, and difficult uh, environment where there isn't really this clarity about the importance of these burning issues, which is tragic. I just want to ask one question, which is is linked to this question of ICT. In what ways would you say, you're suggesting that we've only seen a part of the potential of ICT that has been used narrowly. Can you just talk very briefly about that? What, in, in what sense, how did you come to that conclusion? <laughs> well, you know, first of all, there is something really sad that happened which is that information technology developed its products, you know, computers and iPhones and all all those things were developed in the 1990s, which happened to be a time when oil prices went right back down to what they were before the energy crisis. And at that time also, the Chinese opened up their market and allowed very, very low-cost labor to be available. So what happened was that mass production got a new lease of life. Again, you had materials being cheap. Again, you had energy being cheap. Again, And now you had labor being cheap, which no longer was cheap. And therefore, you could go right back to the old-style mass production and especially planned obsolescence. The whole idea that you should throw away uh, your physical products, I mean, the, the, the actual products, throw them away. It was the notion of waste. It was okay because since energy was cheap, so were materials and so on. When energy went up through the roof to $140 a barrel, which would have been wonderful in the 1990s because it would have made them understand that information technology is about changing the software. You don't have to change the hardware. There is no reason why. But what they did was to adopt the old-fashioned model of throwing out the hardware. So not only the hardware, you could also change the hardware in the sense of the programmed things on the 
but you didn't have to throw out the outside. And, you know, when you think of all the beauty that they have put into the Apple things and so on, and people have to throw them out because there is no, it's not planned to be in the, in the nature of information technology. So that's one of the things. Yes, very interesting. And we were nearly caught ourselves on the on the Skype because Skype continuously updates its program and it means that other programs connected to that are all, don't work anymore. So I was, I was nearly caught out on that. But yes, that, that, thank you for clarifying that. Now, I'd like to talk finally about the role of finance because that's at the heart of your research as well. Um, the, the, the way finance changes from different phases uh, to the deployment phase. Um, I can you talk a little bit about how this actually happens and um, lessons from other technological revolutions. Yes, definitely. Finance is the key element in this whole thing. Finance today is funding finance. It's a speculative casino. It has plenty of credit for non-productive aims. It applies short-termism. I mean, the whole financial world is not solving the problems of the real economy. It's really very frustrating. But you know why? Because there really are no well-defined opportunities. The whole thing that what the state does when when finance comes in, like what they did in the post-war boom, I just told you about suburbanization, they gave finance the possibility of funding millions of homeowners who were salary earners by giving them an insurance, you know, state-insured mortgages, in fact. Veterans in the U.S., everybody who came back from the war, also had a complete cover so that they could then, finance could lend to to mortgage aspirants. So the whole thing of how finance behaves has to do with the context. And right now, the context is that finance gets quantitative easing, that finance gets very low capital gains taxes. I mean, do you realize that capital gains is about 14, 15%, whereas people are paying 30 and 40%? People in their income that they earn with their work get much higher tax, uh, get hacked, get taxed much higher than these people who just sit in their offices and, and uh, get capital gains from either computers doing high frequency trading or, or playing, speculating on derivatives or making whatever, you know, they make, they buy, they sell, da, 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 and they do not necessarily create any new wealth or any new jobs. So the first thing we need, we need to do is to change capital gains tax. It should be extremely high for any amount of money you make within one day. Any, so all this high-frequency trading and all that should be paying 90%. Like people, you, you know, the top rate that people used to pay in the 1950s. Why not? So they pay 90% for anything that's within one day. And then you go all the way down until zero at 10 years and maybe 5% at five years. So capital gains changes to long term. And, uh, and, and, you may, and the government can get a lot of revenue if they insist on being short term. Then uh, something ha- some way has to be found to tax materials, energy, and transport instead of value-added or payroll taxes. I mean, to tax people for employing people, which is what payroll tax is, uh, means that 
you instead of wanting to employ more people, you want to employ less people because you you know, you have this payroll tax on top of what you're paying people. So employment is not favored by that. And of course, if you tax materials, energy and transport instead, you know, value added is salaries and profits. So VAT is a tax on salaries and profits. And the sales tax in the U.S. sort of takes everything together. But but the main thing is, let us single out the three things that are actually environmentally harmful and find a way of taxing them so that people will reduce transport and produce closer if possible, so that you do you produce far away if it's worthwhile producing far away, which there'll be many things, of course, but there are some that are not. And the same thing with energy. You tax energy. You could give uh, a subsidy to people for energy, for to poor people or to old people or whatever, but you have to tax energy so that people understand that they've got to reduce their consumption. And the same thing with materials. But if people are already paying VAT, you know, which is a tax on what they consume, maybe just take that away and put it on top of what they consume that is material. So on services, take away the taxes. So then people will have will consume more services because they are relatively cheaper, you know. So you change the relative cost of things by taxing the bads and not taxing the goods. And then, of course, there is the biggest of all. And that is, how do you get the big global companies to pay proper taxes? Online sellers, you know, why why don't I pay uh, VAT when I buy an Amazon and I pay VAT when I buy in a shop? That's crazy. Why, why do they have that advantage? It's already part of why the high street, which will probably have to change completely. I mean, the high street, the way it used to be, will probably not be able to remain. But it can change. It, can, it has to be transformed. And taxes should not be the reason why they're worse off. And then what to do then about the big global companies? I think we need a financial transactions tax, however controversial it is. It might be the optimal way to, to really catch the money that's going to tax havens and to make the big global companies that move their money around uh, pay taxes somewhere. Maybe we have to have a global tax authority that picks up all that movement and then maybe funds full global development. Uh, or maybe assigns part of the of the proceeds to each of the countries. I mean, people who are really competent in this have got to start thinking of a completely different tax system. Actually, uh, the tax system that was born for mass production was completely different from the one that existed in the previous revolution. So this is normal. This is what should happen. And it's the only way to get finance to finance the right things, to fund the right things, and to get the very, very, you know, the super profitable global companies to pay their shares so that it can be used for all the things that, that need to be done in terms of creating a new uh, safety net. Because the other thing that's super important is to transform the safety net in order to adapt to the new conditions of work. And to give people security, which they have lost, which is one of the reasons, of course, why they're following the populist leaders. So 
I think we need as much imagination now for the whole thing, for, for the changes that need to happen, as was used for the welfare state after the war. There was so much innovation. And you think of all the institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, the, the uh, separate other institutions for the, the GATT, all those things were created then. They were created within a very short period of time, and they transformed the economy. So we need to do something similar. And, of course, the financial, you know, getting finance to, to have using the taxes to transform the behavior of finance is probably the only thing with a bit of regulation and things to, to accompany it that will change their behavior. Yes, yes. You described yourself, Carlotta, as a pessimistic, as the most pessimistic optimist. At the heart of this is really a very fundamental change in government and the, the capacity and the ability of government to change is surely a profound question. Yes. Are you optimistic? No. <laughs> no, I'm very pessimistic. I am very sorry to see that we don't have leaders of the stature of, of Roosevelt and all these people. You know, it's you need you need big people for this. And we are having leaders that just do their little job and that accept that government has to become smaller and that they don't have to innovate and they accept that, you know, they have to have austerity and, and you know, maybe change this little bit here and this little bit there. They don't have the feeling of this huge transformation that's got to happen, you know, like they did in the 1940s, you know. They really understood. And and when you go back also, you know, you have Theodore Roosevelt making big changes, Woodrow Wilson making big changes. Finally, what are your future plans, Carlotta? What are your what are you working on at the moment? What's your research? Well, I'm in the middle of research about precisely about the historical role of the state in transforming, but but looking at the whole thing looking at the five revolutions or the four and a half, because we're still in the middle of the fifth, uh, and seeing what what the state has done. I, I was very fortunate to get funding from a venture capital company, actually, Anthemis, a financial group that does venture capital in fintech. Uh, they read my previous book, Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital, and decided that that was they understood that that's what they had to do, and they came out, and they do fintech taking into account all the social needs, all the new new needs, and they so they're very clear about what their role is next to what could be the state also, because finance also transforms itself, but more often pushed by the state than pushed by conviction, but this group did that. What my book will show, I don't think it will be out in less than a year. I'm working on that, is how it has been done before, how the state has modernized itself as much as it has modernized the policies. And when I mean modernize itself, I mean, think of what was done in the in the previous revolution in the for mass production. I mean, this huge state that took over the NHS and that it became this powerful social force that was investing in things where the private sector wouldn't invest. and uh, But that's that's what they did then, and that was right then, but it's not what we need now. And what we need now is probably to have a multi-level state. We probably need to go to devolve all the way down, not just to 
regions, but actually to communities all the way down to cities, to towns, to communities, to municipalities, and also to devolve up to supranational institutions. You can't have a global economy without a supranational body capable of, of doing something for finance, which is global, and the movement of people and all these things. So we really need probably global institutions of, a, you know, not just the International Criminal Court and things like that, but we need something bigger and especially for finance. So we probably, so the national state would become this very intelligent, agile, middle, you know, broker between the supranational and the subnational and probably help uh, strengthen municipalities and cities and so on have to be stronger and stronger because I think they are the ones who will be solving the problems of the people in their territory. So uh, this national state doing everything doesn't look right anymore. Just like uh, the corporations. I mean, if you think of the way corporation is organized, global corporations, they have very local things. They have they have things that are inside the corporations, things that are outside, that are suppliers. They have all sorts of different contracts. Everything is different, and they have big agreements on the top. And you have in they operate in many countries, and they and they have different sorts of relating. I think possibly states are going to have to change in directions that are similar to that. So it's not easy, but. If the big corporations have done it, there's no reason why governments couldn't. Governments need to be innovative. They need to promote things. Like like Mariana Matsukato says, they create markets by, by being very risky in terms of what innovations they do. So you have to do innovation in things that go to the market, but you also have to do institutional innovation. So there is this whole huge thing to do, and my work is about what did the other, what previous governments did under previous revolutions to understand the logic of the revolution and to understand the logic of what governments did. Sometimes they were successful, extremely successful, like the US and Germany that made the huge leap ahead between 1870 and the First World War, and the ones that were not successful and how, how far each one went so that we can understand the relationship between what the state does and what society gets out of technological revolutions. Well, I wish you the very best of success and and with with your research. And thank you so much for taking the time away from this really important work you're doing, Carlotta, to share the the fruits of all of the research and and, and work you've done on this. It's very uh, deep and profound. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Fergal, for the interview. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 